experiment. If the pastor stays away, just how long will people greet each other? Good morning this morning. My name is Doug Baker. I am one of the pastors here at Community. If you're tuning in online or on the telephone, this is the voice you're hearing. And uh, yes, we get to have a lot of fun today. And I just, I want to confess something to you because it is my sense of humor and sometimes it's not exactly the best sense of humor, but when... Uh, when Daniel was telling us that this week we are supposed to go without our dishwasher, all I could think to myself was, but I'm married. I've always got a dishwasher. <laughs> Terrible, isn't it? <laughs> Honestly, what makes that really funny is guess who usually does the dishes? Me, me, it was me. Uh, this morning, we continue along on our Lenten journey. Uh, we are walking toward the cross, and Easter is getting close. And so uh, as the story uh, continues, Jesus' uh, story in Luke continues, uh, things are starting to get more tense and intense. And this is where we find ourselves today. Now, before we dig into the Word, uh, Pastor Trent, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, alluded to uh, an experience that uh, Pastor Josh and myself, our wives, uh, Danielle and Laura, had when we were in Orlando. And uh, I want to just briefly touch on that, just to share firsthand um, the experience. Uh, we were in Orlando for a church planting conference. Um, it is called Exponential. And while we were there, on the first night of this conference, there was a powerful, dynamic moving of the Spirit. It's not like God's not there normally, but something special happened on that Tuesday night as we uh, gathered, and, and the last speaker did his thing, and, and then there was worship, and then there was a time of prayer, and something was happening in the room. There's a movement happening in the room, and uh, there was a call for repentance, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of church leaders gathered up, came up to the front, and fell on their faces before God, fell on their knees, uh, confessing sin, repenting, uh, as we were challenged to acknowledge the ways that the church sometimes neglects to offer the best of what God offers us uh, in this world. And it was spectacular. We were worshiping for an hour, an hour and a half, and it's like, boom, it was just, it just happened. It was amazing. Like, this conference was amazing, and I, I'm still trying to figure out, like, I'm still trying to understand, like, what's my role? What is God trying to do and, and speak through that? Um, and I don't know if you, have you ever been to a concert, uh, 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 to a, a, a uh, not a concert, a conference. Thank you, John. But when you're at a conference, there's a multitude of speakers, um, and there's always those speakers that like nail it, like they 100%, they got it. And then there are speakers that are like, yeah, they're really good. And then there's always the, eh, okay. In Orlando this year, everybody was, it, the spirit was doing something, and overwhelming, overwhelming um, to be in the presence of God. Now, one of the particular speakers told a story that hit me hard, and I knew, I knew I was going to have to tell this story today. It fits so perfectly with the scripture that was assigned for today and that we would be unpacking. Um, and so I'm, I want to start our time together by sharing with you the story that he told, the story of a woman named Perpetua. And so as we move toward that, let's, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you so much that we get to gather together in the name of Jesus and we get to dig into your word and we get to be challenged and encouraged and, and we get to see your face. Reveal yourself again more clearly this morning so that we, so that we know who you are and we know because we know who you are, we get to know who we are. Speak. Holy Spirit speak. This is our plea. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So because I was not originally scheduled to preach in here, I do not have the map that I was going to show everybody else, so you're just going to have to use your imaginations. You're going to travel with me to a place called Carthage. Carthage is on the north like all the way on the north shore of Africa. It isn't called Carthage today. It's called Tunis, and it is in the country Tunisia. And if you go south from Rome, directly south across the Mediterranean, and you land in Africa, you will land in Tunisia. You will basically land in what used to be Carthage. She grew up in a wealthy family in Carthage, it is March 7, 203, not 2023, not 1923, 1,800 years ago, 203. It's the day that Perpetua is going to die. See, following Jesus was still a pretty new thing back then. Um, it was new enough that it was still seen as a threat by a lot of rulers and a lot of governments. And so the penalty for becoming a Christian back then was pretty severe. It was death. Uh, it's not so common now. There are still a few places in the world where this is true, but it is less common now. It was pretty universal. Rome was still in power at this time. And the Roman emperor, his name was Septimius Severus. He declared that even if you were converted, like, conversion to Christianity was a death sentence. Now, in Carthage, hundreds of miles away, the governor of the time, a guy by the name of Hilarion, he was doing his job and upholding the law. And a 21-year-old woman, brand new mom, she just had her first little boy. She heard about Jesus, and immediately knew that he was her Savior. Now, before she could be baptized, she was captured and imprisoned for her faith. Now, the reason we know her story so well is because she kept a diary, and we still have her diary. You can read her story. You can read from the moment she's imprisoned through all the trials, through the attempts that her dad made. Her dad went to her several times in jail and pleaded with her, take it back, take it back. If not for me, if not for your family and our reputation, take it back for your son who needs you. He's not even, like, he's not even weaned yet. Renounce this Jesus guy and live. But she couldn't. She wouldn't. She believed, she knew that the only way to truly live was to belong to her Lord and Savior. 
And so there was a trial, and she was found guilty because she would not take it back. And there were beatings, and then she was put into the arena with some wild animals, and she was gored by a bull, but that did not end her life. And so to administer the death blow, the gladiators were dispatched, and the gladiator that stood over Perpetua with his sword in his hand was a new gladiator, brand new, and his hand was shaking, and he was struggling to administer this death blow. And Perpetua reached up to steady his shaking hand and guided the sword to her throat. They, uh, they did not take her life. She gave it for Christ. I don't remember ever hearing that story before until I was in Orlando. And it made me think of God's word for us today. We're in Luke, and we're getting to the end. Jesus has arrived one last time to Jerusalem. And as he, as he comes into this space, he comes face to face with the spiritual leaders of God's people of that time, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. They are not happy with what he is teaching. They are confronting. They are challenging. They are looking for ways to trap him and to shut him up. And then this. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. And so the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, knowing they're lying makes those words just sound slimy, don't it? And then they spring the trap. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Perfect trap, because if he says, yes, you should pay taxes, then they can rile up the whole public against him, and all the people will hate him, because Rome was oppressive and evil, and, 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 and it angered people. So yes, if he said, yes, pay taxes, then the people would hate him. Woohoo! And if he said, no, then they could go to Rome, and they go, oh, Rome, look at this seditious man who says we shouldn't pay taxes. He should be killed. Don't let him live. Oh, they had him. But Jesus saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius. Here. No, no. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. 
And he said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give back to God what is God's. And they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. Now, if you want, you can just read the words on this page and take the simple explanation. You can look for the simple meaning behind it. Is this just about taxes? Uh, or maybe, maybe if you want, you can kind of go even as far as, well, this is Jesus talking about appropriate submission to the authorities of this earth. But is that all that Jesus is saying? I mean, those things do align with other parts of Scripture, other pieces of the Bible tell us those things as well. It's quite likely maybe that was part of what Jesus was saying, but if we're willing to take a moment and reflect on the actual words, the words that he is choosing to speak, he's talking to the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he says, all right, hold, hold on a second, whose image do you see? Whose word is written there? Because I tell you what, if Caesar's image and if his word is written on that silver, then let him have it if he wants it, because they're his. But, but, and this is where he takes it a step further. Give back to God what is God's. Where is God's image seen? That's the question. That is the implied question. Where's God's image seen? Now they, teachers of the law, chief priests, the elders would have known these words from Genesis. God created mankind in his own image. In his image, the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Yes, they would have known that. They would have known that. And who's, like where, where is God's word written? Oh, and then they would have known this from Proverbs. They would have known these words. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Yeah, they would have known those words too. Jesus says to them, where God's image is seen and where God's word is written, that belongs to him. See, we think of, we think of this, this body we inhabit as our own, but it is not our own. He's saying that. He's very clearly saying that we are not our own. And, and we don't just get to choose to dish ourselves out, to dish out our talents, to dish out the gifts that we have, to be uh, discerning personally on what we choose and what we see fit on how to use it. No, no, no. Give back to God what is his. That is who we are. And suddenly, I'm confronted with a question myself. Do I live like that's true? 
So no wonder his answer quieted them immediately because now they, they have to answer a more difficult question than the one they asked. And so do we. What does it look like if someone lives as if they belong to God? Not, not, like, not like they're a human being trying to figure out how to be good enough. Not like we're human beings trying to find the right path through a complicated world. Not, 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 not because we're studying the scripture and we're like, okay, so, so how does, like, what is, what is, what, what, how do I make my life kind of fit God's kind of preferences? And, but to live like we belong to God. To live like this whole thing, not just this church, this whole thing, all of creation, the sun that was shining out there, the roads you were driving on, the, the, the state we live in, the country we live in, the planet we inhabit, the universe that we call home, as if every single component, every single molecule of this whole thing belongs to him. That it is his story that he is telling, not that my life is my story and I'm trying to mold it to fit kind of what matters to him as best that I can, but that I instead am actually being included. I'm a minor player. I'm a part in the story that God is telling as he unfolds reality across the ages. Now, that might seem like a very subtle difference, like it might be just semantics, but it is actually a radical shift on how we understand reality itself. This is a different worldview. It's radical because where we focus our attention, where we focus our understanding is a completely different place where there is a, it's, a, it's a new focus on every decision and every experience and every relationship and every purpose we're seeking to fulfill, every meaning we're trying to find in every circumstance. It changes, it changes what we look for when we read his word. It changes the questions we ask when we're looking for the answers to life. How does God want me to fit into the story he's telling about himself? Give back to God what is God's. How can everything about me belong to him? Perpetua, I told you about Perpetua, she got it at 21. I'm a little jealous because I still struggle, like, all the time to figure that out. She got it, like, right away, 21 years old. She knew what it meant, what it looked like back in 203 AD to belong to Jesus Christ, back when converting to Christianity meant death. That's what it often looked like to belong to Christ. How inconvenient. And there are parts of the world where that is true, but not so many. It's different today. No one is going to unleash a wild bull upon you for going to church. But that doesn't mean that you don't have 
to struggle and to figure out what it means to belong to Jesus, your struggles are different. We live in a, in a culture, we, we live in a world where the empires of today, they're more ideological, they're more cultural, they're, they're more kind of uh, a sum, like, 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 oh, what are the things you autopilot into? What are the assumptions about what is normal and what is good? You might not be gored for coming to church, but you could be canceled culturally, if you are public about your faith? How many of us in this room have declined to mention the name of Jesus, even though the Spirit was like, oh, you should talk to that person about Jesus? We're like, yeah, but they would feel uncomfortable. I would feel uncomfortable. I don't want to talk to my neighbors about church. I want to invite my neighbors to church. They might not want to talk to me again. How uncomfortable. And the world tells us the things that are normal, and the world tells us the things that we should put our time and our energy and our attention into, and the world tells us all of these things to uh, occupy our energies, and it is nonsense, and it's done that way on purpose so that you have nothing left to give for God's story. I mean, think about, think about the things that we do that take up so much of our time and our energy. Think about the things, think about the things that we watch. Or think about the thing, the jokes that we tell. Or think about the ways that we spend our money. Did you know that the, na- like the world average for screen time, TV, phone, seven hours a day? Seven. That's a full-time job doing this. Is that what God wants so we can be a part of his story? Now, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to manipulate you. This isn't about a guilt trip. I'm not trying to create shame. I, I struggle myself. I'm right here with you. I'm not asking these questions in certain ways because, well, you know what the answer is and now we need to feel guilty and now we gotta go fix it. I just just want to, I just wanna challenge us to change our perception of reality toward the one that's centered on Christ. Is he our master or is he just a magic totem that we pull out from time to time when we need to feel better? Perpetua knew the difference. And she was 21. Jesus, when Jesus lived, he did it in such a way to make it absolutely clear what it meant to be human. He did it in such a way to introduce us to reality It's not an accident that the first words of preaching out of his mouth when he came out of the wilderness was, repent for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is near. Like what Jesus was doing in his life 
What Jesus was showing us in his life, the second Adam, was what it actually means to be human. The things he did that we think of as extraordinary or abnormal or miraculous, what he did was the actual real. He was bringing in, he was ushering in, he was introducing us to what it might look like, what it can look like, what it should look like for the kingdom of God to be present right now, today. The miracles he performed were not meant to show us an extraordinary, spectacular sign. What he showed us is the kingdom of God. What Jesus did is what normal is supposed to look like. Even in the face of a world that is broken and angry and fallen and sore. He lived like the kingdom of God is present and real as if God's story are, is the actual overarching narrative. There's this amazing quote that I ran into in the last couple of weeks by a guy named Jürgen Moltmann. And just saying his name is fun, Jürgen. He's got this amazing quote. He says this, uh, Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural and demonized and wounded. And we need that to be true. We need it to not only be objectively true, we need it to be true right, right here every day. Because if that is true, if that's God's story, then that's glorious. And on the flip side, if I'm only living my story, then all of this, this brokenness and all of this fallenness, this is normal, and God is the deviation. Do we want that to be true? It's okay to say no. And that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible says that this is God's story. That creation, that life, the world, the universe, that every single thing out here, everything we encounter, even ourselves, we're all about him. Our life exists for him. My life is not about me. It's actually just a tiny, tiny little piece of what he wants this world to know about him. That's why my life is here. That's why I get to breathe. And as soon as I stop doing that, I am worthless for the kingdom of God. That is why I'm here. That's why you're here. So that the world around you gets to see a tiny little glimpse of the kingdom of God. And that means that my suffering or my joy or my talent or my kids or my time or my money or whether I live or die are for him. Just like it says in Romans 14, right? None of us lives to ourselves alone. None of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So then whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. I think that. I think that, way more than taxes, is what Jesus is talking about when he says to us, let the world have what it prints its image on. You belong to God. Give yourselves back to him. 
and let him tell his story through you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you. I mean, it's, it boggles us that in a, just a single challenging statement about something that seems like it could be taxes, you rewrite our perception of reality. Father, this is your story. Every single moment of all of history is about revealing you. Father, I confess that I spend a lot of time wasted on things that don't have anything about revealing that. And I pray that you would help me. You would help me to be a part of the story that you're telling about you. We pray that for all of us, for this church, for each life in it, for this community, for Zealand, Holland, for Southwest Michigan. Every moment belongs to you. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.